0: go okay turn with me to Matthew 5 and we're going to look at verses 33 to 37 it's an interesting passage it says again you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord but I say to you Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now as we come to this passage, at first it may seem Somewhat obscure. Uh, A lot of Christians don't know much about it, and so it seems rather strange to them. Uh, Most believers will say, Well, I've read it, but I'm not sure I understand it. All that stuff about making oaths seems strange. Uh, So they just kind of pass over it. But let me give you a hint. The passage has to do with things we say and swear to and affirm. So whatever the Bible talks about, the things you say, you ought to stop and study it and master it. Uh, Why? Because James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Uh, That's rather significant. Uh, Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. In other words, you need to learn that what you say is a vital thing because it's like an MRI of your heart. Uh, It reveals what is there. Uh, So whenever the Bible talks about the speech or the tongue, we ought to listen. Many years ago, I'm sure most of you remember, there was a TV show which they have revived again, and you can watch an updated version of it uh, called To Tell the Truth. Uh, the program features three people who all claim to be some kind of specialist at something, and but two of them are liars, and the one is the real thing, and the panelists ask questions of them and then try to guess who is telling the truth. And that is nothing but a microcosm of life. Uh, I know that when I was working in law enforcement, we always assumed that everyone was lying to us, because about 90% of the time, they were. Uh, truth is so scarce that nearly everyone is suspect. Uh, There's such a credibility gap in our world, and we add to it by the fantasy of reality TV shows and movies and books, which indu- induce us into a mixture of truth and falsehood that is virtually impossible to unscramble. Uh, I mean, just think about it. Who in here would want to watch a murder mystery in which everyone tells the truth? I mean, you, know, you enjoy the plot twist and the, the scheming and the lying that, that make up the story. It, it's simply ingrained into our lives. Uh, credibility gaps are not a creation of our modern society. They have existed since the fall. Uh, and have continually been one of the major marks of the world system. Jesus said Satan is the father of lies, and so it should not be surprising that the system that he heads is characterized by lying. Uh, because all men are born in sin, all men are born liars. Uh, Psalm 58, three says the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. Uh, truth is scarce. Uh, Everyone is suspect. Business people, salesmen, clerks, lawyers, doctors, advertisers, teachers, media, politicians, even pastors, uh, with a few exceptions. In fact, the the whole of our society is a network of fabrication. Uh, We shade the truth. We cheat. We exaggerate. We tax dodge. We fail to keep our promises. We flatter for gain. We betray confidences. Uh, We make excuses, we tell half lies and white lies, all is a matter of normal, everyday living. You remember the uh, Jim Carrey movie titled Liar, Liar, in which a uh, man who built his entire career on lying was cursed to speak only the truth for a single day. He was a lawyer. just, Just imagine if for one day, Everyone in our world had to tell the truth. Our entire system would collapse. Uh, it's all built on a framework of lies because it's all spawned by the father of lies. And yet paradoxically, our world realizes that if you don't tell the truth at certain times, it's going to be very costly. Uh, and so when you get on the witness stand in a courtroom, they make you swear to tell the truth, and they make not telling the truth a crime, perjury. Uh, And it's pretty tough for people because they've lived in a system that lies about everything else. The great Roman orator, Cicero, said truth is the highest thing a man may experience. Uh, Daniel Webster said there's nothing as powerful as truth and nothing often as strange. Uh, Even the Jewish rabbis, in spite of their system, said there were four things that shut a person out of the presence of God. Uh, One is scoffing, two is hypocrisy, three is slander, and four is lying. Uh, And yet by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, the Jews were so good at lying that their system was just unbelievable. Uh, And Jesus just cut through the facade of that system. The Jews of Jesus' day revered the idea of truth and principle, but in practice, it was buried under their system of tradition. Uh, Which over the centuries had continually cut God's law down to fit their own perspectives and purposes. And in this passage, Jesus proceeds to expose their convenient distortion and contradiction of the divine revelation they loved, they claimed to love and teach. Now, in these five verses, Jesus sets forth five things. Uh, Well, I'm sorry, three things. First, he sets forth the principles of the Mosaic law, and then he sets forth the perversion of rabbinic tradition, and then he gives us the perspective of divine truth. And we're going to see what the Old Testament taught about law oaths, what the Jewish system had developed, and what Jesus affirms. So let's begin with the principles of the Mosaic Law, looking at verse 33 again. It says, Again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now, that statement is not included in the Old Testament. It was a statement from their Jewish traditions, but it was based on the Old Testament because oaths were a part of the Old Testament. Uh, you'll notice the word vows, and you'll notice the word words make false vows. Uh, both come from the same root. Uh, the word translated oath in verse 34 is a synonym. An oath is simply making a statement and calling God to witness to the truth of that statement and invoking a curse from God if in fact you're not telling the truth. People do it all the time. They say, I swear to God I'm telling the truth. Or I swear to God and hope to die if I'm not if I'm telling a lie. Uh, when you go to court, it used to be. Uh, when I started in law enforcement, it was this way, that you put your left hand on a Bible and you raised your right hand and said, I do, when the clerk administered the oath to you. And the oath was, I do solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Uh, However, these days, because some Christians object to swearing such oaths, the courts have added the words or affirm uh, into the oath, and they've now eliminated the Bible from the scene and they've dropped the words, so help me God, because so many atheists objected to those things. So now all they do, they say is, do you solemnly swear or affirm to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And so times have changed when it comes to swearing oaths in court. Uh, And when you get married, you say, I hereby promise before God in the presence of these witnesses that I will honor, cherish, and so forth. You're invoking God as a witness to the veracity of a lifelong vow that you're making. Even the pledges, a Pledge of Allegiance that we recite to the flag is an oath to defend our nation and its flag. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses who refuse to make any kind of oath will not recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, they recognize it as a vow and they teach that no one should ever make a vow to anyone or any other institution other than Jehovah. But contrary to what that cult and others believe, This process of making oaths and swearing vows was something that had been a part of Jewish society from the earliest days of the Old Testament. And we'll look at some of those in just a moment. But first, look for a moment at Hebrews 6.16. And I want to show you what is perhaps the best definition biblically of an oath. In this passage, the writer is speaking about the second great covenant, the new covenant, the great covenant Jeremiah said would come when God planted his law in the hearts of his people. And in verse 16, God wanted to verify the validity of his word. Uh, And of course, God never tells a lie, but God accommodated himself to the way humans do things as he does in so many ways and at so many times. So it says in verse 16, for people swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In other words, when a man wants to swear or make an oath to confirm his word, he will call on God who is the greater to attest to the truthfulness of that vow. And when two people have a conflict one of them will make an oath promising to fulfill something in order to resolve the dispute and put an end to the matter and to secure the confidence of the other person. And when he does that, he affirms the truth by calling God to witness. And verse 17 shows that amazingly, even God did this. It says, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. In other words, God, wanting to accommodate men and show them the immutability or the unchanging character of his promise, also made an oath. Now, when God makes an oath, he doesn't make an oath by anyone greater than himself. Uh, as I live, says the Lord, and then comes the statement. In other words, God makes an oath on himself, the point being that God does acquiesce to the oath system. God realizes men are sinners, and they need an affirmation of their truthfulness. They, They need something fearful to bind them to speak the truth in serious settings. And there are many times when God or Jesus says, truly, truly, uh, and then makes some kind of pronouncement. That is done to emphasize the significance of the statement. It's not because it is more truthful than when he didn't say it. It was simply to emphasize it, and that's the reason that God makes an oath. Not because you have to have an oath from him to trust him, but simply to emphatically Emphasize the urgency and the singular significance of that which he has said, setting it apart from other things. Now, God provided for making oaths by his name in Leviticus 19.12. And many Old Testament saints, both before and after the giving of the law, followed the practice. Abraham uh, confirmed his promises to the king of Sodom and to Abimelech, with oaths in the name of god in genesis 24 2 and 3 abraham made his servant eliezer swear an oath he was sending eliezer to find a wife for isaac and genesis 24 records he told him please place your hand under my thigh and i will make you swear by the lord the god of heaven and the god of earth that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. Now let me explain this. This is a little different. In that culture, the ultimate oath a man could make was to place his hand under the male reproductive organs in the groin of the man who was requiring him to swear an oath and then swear by Yahweh's name to do what he had promised. Now, that sounds pretty gross to us and a serious violation of one's personal privacy. But that was the way it was done in that culture. It symbolized swearing to the man and all of his future descendants that you would do what you were sworn to do. In Genesis 26, so, so anytime you see that, script, that in scripture where you say, place your hand under his eye, you know what's happening now. <laughs> you may have wondered what in the world's going on there. That's what's happening. In, in Genesis 26, 28 to 31, Isaac and Abimelech swore oaths of peace with one another. Uh, in Genesis 31, 44 to 53, Jacob and his father in law Laban called on God as their witness when they made a covenant with one another. Uh, Ruth swore an oath to Naomi by the name of Yahweh to stay with her until she died. Jonathan and David swore an oath to one another by God's name in 1 Samuel 20, verse 16. In Psalm 132, 2, we're told that David swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Uh, in, New, in the New Testament, Paul regularly swears by God's name. And particularly he calls God as his witness no less than five times. Uh, Romans 1:9, 2 Corinthians 1:23. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, 1 Thessalonians 2.10, and Philippians 1.8. Five times he does it. It's like saying, I swear to God. Uh, so some of the greatest men and women of God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ruth, Jonathan, David, and Paul, all swore vows, and there are only a few examples. They swore a covenant with someone as to the truthfulness of their statement by calling God to witness it and saying, in effect, God, if I'm telling a lie, you bring your vengeance on me. You know that God regulated, specified regulations for how an oath was to be made and fulfilled. In the Numbers 30 verse 2, in Numbers 30 verse 2, God said, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, He shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter to talk about the various conditions under which these oaths were to be made and fulfilled. In other words, God says, do this. And when you do it, mean it and keep it. God knows men are sinners and God knows that the basic lying nature of men is causes them to distrust one another. And in serious situations, it will be necessary for oaths to be taken. And when those take place, they must be fulfilled. Let me show you an example of someone who lied and lied with an oath and then didn't keep it. You all know the story. It was the story of Peter. And it gives us an idea of how oaths were taken. This, this case happens to be a negative one, uh, unfortunately, but it will make the point. In Matthew 26, 69 and 70, uh, Peter is sitting outside the court where Jesus is being tried inside. And the text says, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're talking about. So first of all, he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Verse 71, when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. See that? The second time he says, as God is my witness, I don't know him. Huh. Oh, Peter lies. And that's a bad to lie. It's double bad to call God as a witness to your lying. And coming up, it gets triple bad. Verse 73. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. In other words, you have a Galilean accent. We know that you're one of them. Verse 74. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Now, contrary to what many have taught, This is not profanity or filthy, dirty, profane language. He is saying, may God curse me if I'm not telling the truth. I swear to God I don't know the man. That's what he's doing. Now you know why when the rooster crowed, verse 75 says he went out and wept bitterly. It's bad enough to lie, it's worse to confirm your lie by invoking God as a witness to its truthfulness and then to swear to God and call down a curse from heaven if you're lying. And I imagine that all the tears he shed never washed his soul out of the memory of what he had done. So there are two things in the Old Testament that I want you to get. Swearing and making oaths were, one, to be done only in God's name, and two only for very special occasions, in fact, keeping one's vows was so important that in psalm one fifty uh, in psalm fifteen one uh and, and in psalm fifteen four David, in describing the person who may enter the Lord's holy presence, makes clear that one mandatory requirement is that such a person be one who swears to his own heart and does not change. In other words, his word is more important than his welfare. Keeping oaths made to God is a mark of a true worshiper. But unfortunately, there are many occasions where people make rash oaths. They have no business making them. They they took them... Uh, They took them at the wrong time for stupid things, and then they're bound by them. Uh, There was Joshua in Joshua 9.15, who made a covenant, swore an oath to the Gibeonites not to kill them, and when it was discovered they weren't who they claimed to be, uh, Joshua and Israel were stuck with them. So since because of their oath they couldn't kill them, as the Lord had commanded be done, they could only enslave them. Perhaps the most famous of all terrible vows was that which was made by Jephthah. In Judges 11, 30 and 31, he was going out to battle against the Ammonites. And it says that Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And when he returned home from battle, the first thing that came out of the door was his one and only child, his virgin daughter. Uh, But despite his great distress and sorrow, he told his daughter, I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. Uh, So after giving her a two month period of mourning, it says in verse 39 that at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made. That's a horrible vow, isn't it? Uh, I've heard people say, well, if I was Jeff, I wouldn't have kept my vow. Well, that may be the case, but the point of the story is not what you would have, wouldn't have done in that situation, but rather just how serious making and keeping a vow to the Lord really is. God put that story in Scripture to warn you about the serious, tremendously serious consequences there are in making a vow. And there was Saul in First Samuel 14, who put his army under an oath with a curse on anyone who ate food until the battle was over. Unfortunately, his son Jonathan wasn't there to hear that. And during a break in the battle, as he and some of the men were going through the woods, they came across some honey and Jonathan ate some. And later on, when God wouldn't answer Saul about going into battle the next day, he decided to find out who had eaten food And when he learned it was Jonathan, he was ready to carry out his vow and kill his son. But the army rose up against Saul and ransomed Jonathan from Saul's hand. Uh, In Matthew 14, Herod swore an oath to Salome to give her whatever she wanted because she had entertained his guest with a seductive dance. Her mother hated her. John the Baptist because he had confronted her and Herod about their adultery. So he prompted her daughter to give her the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Even though Herod didn't want to do it, he didn't want to be embarrassed in front of his guests. So he had John beheaded. So there are some stupid rash oaths and vows recorded in Scripture. On the other hand, you find lovely oaths given by Ruth and Samuel and David and others at the right time for the right reasons, and God honored them. As I said, the Old Testament taught two things. All oaths were to be in God's name, and only those and were only to be made for very serious special occasions. Uh, they were told in Deuteronomy six thirteen, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Uh, Isaiah sixty-five sixteen says, he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Deuteronomy 10.20 says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. The only person or object ever to be sworn by was God. Uh, In Jeremiah 12.16, Jeremiah even says to the Gentiles, then if they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name. Uh, God established the seriousness of taking a vow in Leviticus 5, 4 to 6. It says, if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. So it was serious business. Vows were to be made only in God's name and only on very special occasions. So that's the principle of the Mosaic Law. Now before we start looking at the perversion of rabbinic traditions, let me just pause and ask if there's any questions or comments at this point. Is everybody with me? Okay. Well, let's see what the Jews were teaching in Jesus day. Verse 33 sounds good. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now that sounds biblical, but like everything else they did, it fell far short of what the Old Testament actually taught. There are two things that were wrong with it. One is a missing ingredient, and the other is a misplaced emphasis. Uh, the missing ingredient in their system was it never told them when it was proper to swear an oath. And so that led to a lot of frivolous swearing. They were swearing oaths for every little thing throughout the day. They were swearing by this, swearing by that, and, and all day long making indiscriminate, glib oaths as a common matter of conversation. And you can see there in the statement in verse 33 that there's no qualification. It just says, be sure when you make an oath to the Lord that you keep it. It doesn't say anything about when you should do that. And so they were just swearing by everything. And of course, that made people believe what they were saying. I mean, if a guy came up to you and said, if you will do this work for me, I will pay you double what." anyone else will pay you and I swear by heaven and earth and I swear by my head and I swear by Jerusalem and I swear by the altar and I swear by the temple I'll do as I said you would probably say all right I'm your guy but then they'd go right out and not do what they said and they had all kinds of ways to deny that their oath was binding And they'd swear to everything. They're like a bunch of elementary kids running around saying, cross my heart and hope to die if I'm telling a lie. Uh, It was meaningless. If you go back and read the rabbinic code of law in the Mishnah, there is one whole section given over to the question of oaths, and it goes into great detail about them. It includes detailed considerations of when they are binding and when they are not. Uh For example, one rabbi said that if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you're bound by your vow. So the swearing of oaths degenerated into terrible rules, which let you know when you could get away with lying and deception and when you couldn't. And they use them constantly for everything. Secondly, they had a misplaced emphasis. Notice the phrase, to the Lord. That was their little catch. As long as you swore to the Lord, you had to do it. But if you swore to anything else, you didn't have to. Remember when you were a little kid and someone broke a promise they made to you, and they said, I know I told you that, but I had my fingers crossed. In a sense, that's exactly what they were doing. If you didn't swear to the Lord, you didn't have to keep it. So they're saying, I swear by heaven. I swear by earth. I swear by Jerusalem. I swear by my head. I swear by the temple. I swear by this thing and that thing. And and then they would go right out and do just the opposite. And they didn't have any sense of guilt at all because they said, I didn't swear by the name of the Lord. And so to them, it wasn't binding. And all it did was build a network of lies going in every direction. For example, Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear falsely by my name. And God's emphasis is on the word falsely. But they put the emphasis on by my name. So you could swear falsely so long as you didn't do it by the Lord's name. And Numbers 30, verse 2, which says, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth, was interpreted to permit reneging on oaths that were made to anyone but God. Because in their thinking, only vows and oaths to the Lord were binding. No others were. You see, if you're going to be righteous on your own, and you're going to you're you're going to make yourself righteous you've got to invent a system that you can keep and so they wanted to lie because they were liars and sinners can't help but lie so they just fit their lies into a nice comfortable category if you didn't say in the lord's name you could lie and it was okay that's how they twisted the scriptures Well, you might call that evasive oaths or frivolous vows. Frivolous because they did it all the time and evasive because they circumvented the truth. So that was how they had perverted the uncomfortable truth of the law into something they were comfortable they could keep. So let's look then at the perspective of divine truth. Watch how Jesus deals with this beginning in verse 34. He says, but I, but I say to you, make no oath at all. What he means is stop making vows like that. He doesn't mean that you can't make an oath in court or to the veracity of some legal document. Why doesn't he mean that? Because the Old Testament provided for and commanded making vows in God's name in certain solemn and significant matters as we've already seen. He already said back in verses 17 and 18 that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets and that every letter and stroke of the law would be fulfilled. So he cannot mean that we are never to take an oath or make a vow to tell the truth. In fact, when Jesus was on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest in Matthew 26, 63 and 64, he remained silent until Caiaphas put him under an oath to answer the question as to whether or not he was the Messiah, and then he answered truthfully. So answering questions under oath in court or swearing to the veracity of legal documents is not what Jesus is talking about. He is saying in the strongest terms that those who follow him must speak the truth. They must be characterized by being truthful. They must never take the line that only when an oath is sworn do they need to be truthful. They must not be making flippant, uncalled for, and often hypocritical oaths used to create an impression that they're telling the truth. As Bible scholar William Hendrickson says, over against that evil, Jesus commends simple truthfulness in thought, word, and deed. Instead then, in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, we are to swear by no name other than God's. Jesus continues to say that the oaths are on. Look at it as he continues here. Say oaths are not to be made either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. See, the Jews thought that if they appealed to heaven, earth, and Jerusalem, in their oaths, those oaths were not as binding as if they swore an oath in God's name. But Jesus essentially says, you can't swear by heaven and avoid God because that's his throne. And you can't swear by the earth and avoid him because that's his footstool. And you can't swear by Jerusalem and avoid him because that's his city. So even though they thought that by those things, that since those things were not God himself, they could swear by them and later renege on the earth on the oath. Jesus says, no way. Those are all directly connected to God. And to swear by them is to swear by him. And when you break that vow, you've sinned against God. Now, Jesus continues on in verse 36. He says, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. These oaths were considered to be far less binding. The Jews would say, I swear by my own head, which in our culture today would be similar to saying, I swear by my own life or I swear by my name. Uh, Jesus says, you're not to make those kind of frivolous oaths because you cannot make one hair white or black. You're not the one who controls that. God does. Now, obviously, at the time Jesus said that, they didn't have hair coloring like we do today. Uh, most of the women I know aren't going around with their natural hair color. You have to wait to know uh, a while till their roots start showing to know what the color actually is. Um, but the point here is that no one can control the natural color of their hair. God determines if it's gray, brown, black, or blonde under that dye. Uh, So what Jesus is saying is this. God is in control of your head. Heaven is his home. The earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. Regardless of which one you swear by, you involve God. He's all in all. You can't avoid God. You can't compartmentalize your lying and your truth-telling. There's no sacred and secular. There's no way to avoid it. You, You can't be telling the truth in church and lie in your business. You can't separate those categories. God is all and in all. And whenever you vow a vow and you swear to tell the truth, you invoke God in that vow no matter what you do to try to keep him out of it. Now, this matter was so complex that Jesus very bluntly confronted the scribes and Pharisees about it again in Matthew 23. Let's look at that. Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22. Matthew 23, 16 to 22. He says, beginning in verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold in the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar which sanctifies, that sanctifies the offering? In other words, he's asking them, by what kind of twisted kind of twisted logic can that which is less valuable make an oath more binding? Verse 20. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Isn't it amazing what a convoluted system they had? But the greatest error of the system was not in its illogic, but in its basic deceptiveness and dishonesty. As a matter of accepted policy, some oaths were used to undermine the very purpose they were meant to serve, namely the truth. If they wanted to con some guy, they would say, I swear by the altar in the holy temple. And the sucker would say, that's good enough for me. After all, you're an esteemed Jewish religious ruler. That that oath was nothing more than my fingers were crossed behind my back. It didn't count. So here they were trying to convince everyone that they were righteous. And Jesus says, you're liars to the core. Your system only betrays the reality of your rotten hearts. What you've missed is that however and whenever the truth is profane, God's name is profaned. Jesus relates every oath to God. God is the creator, Lord of everything. He's the God of truth in everything. Therefore, to carelessly and dishonestly swear by any part of His creation is to dishonor God Himself, whether or not His name was invoked. God, in some way, stands behind everything. To dishonor and compromise any truth is to dishonor and compromise His truth. Therefore, no oath is trivial. No oath is a ev- justifiable evasion. All oaths are solemn, pledges to speak the truth. I don't often quote William Barclay because much of the time his theology went off the rails. Uh, he described himself theologically as a, quote, liberal evangelical, end quote. He... Uh, Believed in universal salvation, evolution, and pacifism, He was also weak on the inspiration of scripture, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, the virgin birth, and miracles. So that's why I usually avoid mentioning him. And I never recommend him to the average person who is looking for a commentary on the book of the Bible. Uh, But he is particularly good on historical background. And so I always read his commentaries for that, but not much else. Uh, However, every so often, he said something profound. Uh, After all, even a blind squirrel finds an occasional acorn. Uh, And in this case, he nails it. Uh, Listen to what Barclay wrote about our text here in Matthew 5. He writes this, quote, Here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments in which in some in some of which God is involved and in others of which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church and another kind of language in the shipyard or the factory or the office. There cannot be one kind of conduct in the church and another kind of conduct in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life and in every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words, and there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into a transaction. We will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. That's really good, isn't it? You see, the point is that truth knows no degrees, no grays, only black and white. And half-truths are whole lies. God has never had any standard lower than absolute truthfulness. Psalm 51.6 says that he desires truth in the innermost being of everyone. In Proverbs 6.16-19, 6, 6 to, to Solomon lists seven things that are an abomination to God. And the second one is a lying tongue. And the sixth one is a false witness who utters lies. Uh, Proverbs 12:22 repeats the same idea, and it says lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But that's not the way of fallen mankind, and it starts at birth. As I read this early on, Psalm 58, 3 says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Those who speak lies go astray from birth. And in Psalm 62, 4, David said that the wicked delight in falsehood. And what's the end of all liars? Revelation 21, 8 says, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So you see, Jesus is saying, you can't be in my kingdom if you're characterized by lying. Liars are wicked and the wicked are liars. They could never go into his kingdom on their own. They would have to have those lies washed away by the blood of Christ to get into his kingdom. You see the the love of truthfulness and the hatred of lying are marks of those who were sons of the kingdom. They hate lies psalm one nineteen twenty nine remove the false way from me psalm one nineteen one sixty three I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law psalm one twenty verse two Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. And so Jesus destroys their system, tears apart their elaborate cloak of cover and reveals the truth. He's simply reasserting the Old Testament standard. What was it? Two things govern oaths. One, you don't use them frivolously, but only for special, significant occasions. And two, you only swear by the name of God. He is not totally forbidding the swearing of oaths like the Anabaptists and the Quakers and the Moravians and other groups at taught. So he's not overturning the Old Testament in uh, the Old Testament law in regard to how oaths and vows were to be made. He's simply saying, don't swear an oath at all in the manner with which you've been accustomed to doing, evasively trying to cover your lies. Which God, because God touches every single place in his universe. And then he says in verse 37, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. That word statement is the Greek word logos. It means word. You all know John one one. In the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and the logos was God. It is the simplest Greek word for communication, a word, a statement. Uh, the point is, is that every normal word in the course of daily speech should be a truthful word, unadorned, unqualified in regards to his truthfulness. A person's word, message, or speech should be as good as his bond and as good as his oath or vow. If it's any more than that, you simply reveal the evil source of your heart. That last phrase, anything beyond these is of evil, is probably better translated, is of the evil one. In fact, in the New Legacy Standard Bible, which the New Testament's already out, and the entire Bible will be complete by sometime later this fall or winter. It translates it that way. After all, who is the, father's, uh, uh, the father of lies? Satan, the evil one. So the person whose heart is filled with lies and who is characterized by lying reveals that his father is the evil one. Satan himself. Followers of Christ, children of God, hate lying. They hate untruthfulness. I'm not saying that believers never lie. They most certainly do at times, but it is not the pattern or the characteristic of their life. But Satan's children are characterized by continual constant lying and false vow making. Jesus' teaching on this matter of truthfulness left a big impression in the early church because in what was probably the very first epistle in the New Testament that was written, the epistle of James. James wrote these words, clearly influenced by what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount. James 5.12 But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So God wants his children to be people of truth. He wants us to be those whose word is our bond. We shouldn't have to go through life saying, I swear to God, it's the truth uh, in order to have somebody believe us, because they should know that we are so truthful that reinforcing our words with statements like that are simply unnecessary. I like what Dr. Helmut Thielicke, a German theologian, had to say about this. He wrote this, quote, Whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I'm really saying now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut it off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, I'm saying even more than this. I am saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oath and words of honor." Christ calls us away from such cheapening of language and instead to give ourselves to radical truthfulness. And yes, there will be be times in our lives when we can take an oath. John MacArthur has told of a time when he was a young college-age man that he was involved in a serious car accident that almost took his life. And after that accident, he committed his life to the Lord for ministry. And he told the Lord, Lord, I promise you my life to preach your word till I die. I covenant with you that that's what I'll do. And he's done just that. If John was to ever turn his back on his oath, God would be right to chasten him for breaking his covenantal promise to him. When I married Marcia, I made an oath before God that I would remain married to her and be faithful to her until death do us part. That was a vow before God, and I'm bound before him to keep it. I only wish more people, including Christians, recognize that such vows are holy and unbreakable, except under very limited circumstances. I have testified in court on many occasions during my law enforcement career, and I had to take an oath to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I was always struck by the solemnity of that oath, but I know people who weren't and who stretched the truth or were misleading in their testimony. But it's okay to make such oaths and vows. And then I have had to sign legal documents at various times throughout my life and career, and those documents require that you swear that you will fulfill whatever you've promised or stated in them. I've signed mortgage documents promising to pay my mortgage. I've signed car loan documents. I've signed arrest affidavits. I've signed all kinds of legal documents, and I know you have, too. Believers need to see those as just as binding as if they raised their hand in court and swore to tell the truth, or just as binding as those promises they made when they got married. But beyond those solemn and important occasions, there should be no need to swear oaths or vows in normal everyday conversation in order to convince someone else that you will do what you told them that you will do. If my conversation is so suspect that I have to make vows to God that I'm telling the truth, then there's something wrong with my life, right? You ought to be able to trust what I say. My yes is to be yes and my no is to be no. Anything more than that reveals an evil, untrustworthy heart. God is a holy God. His kingdom is a holy kingdom, and the people of his kingdom are to be our holy people. His righteousness is to be their righteousness, and anything less than his righteousness, including anything less than absolute truth, is unacceptable to him because it's of the evil one. So let's keep our vows. The vows we made that demanded an oath before God, and let's keep them for our entire lives. And in our daily conversation, let's speak the truth, the real truth, and live it out so that we become that one little oasis of truth in the midst of this evil world of lying. When people know that you do not lie, your testimony will have more effect than all the theology you could ever ram at them. What a difference a truthful life can make. And we come to the end of this passage. Any other comments or questions at this time? I hope you learned something in this lesson. Because I see this all the time. I hear this all the time from my fellow believers. I swear I'm telling the truth. Uh, Why do you need to tell me that? Yeah, so let's do that. Anything else? Okay, then let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us. It challenges the way we live our lives, the things that we say as we go through life. Lord, I pray that we would be characterized as being people who are truthful, who when we say yes, others can know that we mean yes. When we say no, others know that we mean no. We do not need to make frivolous oaths of any kind to affirm what we're saying. Lord, we pray now as we go from this place and go into the next service that you would cause our hearts to praise and rejoice in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Who is with us. All these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming. And you're dismissed.